You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This is the Marketing Podcast Network. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm pleased to introduce you to Janae Sacken, a former English professor at Rochester Institute of Technology. Janae is now a photojournalist who travels the world documenting the lives of women and children. She's also photographing wildlife and is deeply committed to the conservation of endangered species. She joins me today to talk about her career and latest book, Double Exposure. Welcome to Uncorking Story, Janae. Hi, I'm thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to have you here. And I have to ask you the question I ask everybody as we kick off, which is, Janae, where does your story begin? Uh, probably um, when I was four years old and playing Barbies with my best friend, Debbie. And we would make up the most complicated, complex stories for Barbie and Ken and Midge and Skipper to act out. And we did this over and over again. Um, but jumping forward from that, I was the kid in the neighborhood who always wrote little plays for back to school and we would put them on in somebody's garage and the garage door would be our curtain and these things never lasted long but we were thrilled that all of the older sibs and uh, the mothers in the neighborhood would um, pay a whole dime to come and watch us perform our little skits a pretty idyllic childhood um, so I had that writing and creative storytelling bug from a very early age. When I got into third grade, um, my third grade teacher had a nervous breakdown and left. I assume that wasn't your fault. I'm hoping it wasn't, um, but you never know. And um, she had been you know, sick periodically, and they would always bring in the same substitute teacher Mrs. Wiegand. All of the kids in the class, except for her son, Kenny, were terrified of Mrs. Wiegand. And so one Monday morning, when the principal walked Mrs. Wiegand in and said, well, boys and girls, Mrs. Wiegand is going to be your teacher for the rest of the year. Jaws, you could hear them hitting our desktops. 
we were so scared. And he obviously saw something because he said, well, if anybody here doesn't want to stay in this class, we can move you. And everybody's looking around like, is he serious? They're not going to move us. We're all going to be dead ducks if anybody raises their hands. So later that week, she, Mrs. Weekend assigned us to write a short story. And I knew short stories, hey. So, uh, you know, I don't, <clears throat> they had those tablets of paper that were probably, um, uh, I don't know, a foot long and maybe eight inches high and they had the wide lines. And so we pulled out our tablets and she said, now I want you to write a story about something you know. And for some reason, I decided to write a story about a shepherd in a desert tending sheep. I, which I knew nothing about, <laughs> important lesson. But I wrote and wrote and wrote. And I see all these other kids going up to drop off their stories on her desk. And they're all like half a page. And mine is 10 pages long. Oh, it's got dialogue. It's got setting. It's got plot. And she finally stops me and I hand her my 10 pages. The next day, she calls me to the front of the classroom. And I was terrified. And then she reads my story to the class. I am even more terrified. I am praying to the floorboards to open up and swallow me. They didn't. But at the end, she said, boys and girls, we have an author in our classroom. Oh, wow. It was probably one of the most affirming experiences I have had um, for my writing. It was phenomenal. And did your did your point of view on Mrs. Wiegan turn around that day? Oh yeah, <laughs> she could do no wrong after that. I'm curious though. I mean, I want to know more about the story you wrote. Um, but what was it about Mrs. Wiegan that you were all freaked out about? Um, well, first of all, her son was in the class with us, and so we all figured even though we all knew he was like a CD student, that he'd be getting straight A's. Um, she also yelled at people and she picked on us and she was very critical. And we all just thought she was mean. I mean, that was the word on the playground every time she subbed. <clears throat> oh, you've got Mrs. Wiegand today. Anyway, um, so that really launched uh, my writing career. The next year, another affirming action was when one of the girls in the fourth grade class said, um, instead of going out to recess today, could Janae read her story to us? I know she's writing another one. And the class voted yes. Wow. Um, I was stunned. Thank God it rained. <laughs> um so then I thought I really had it all together with you know writing and I was just writing and writing and writing. And then I got to my freshman year in high school and I asked my English teacher if she'd be willing to read something I'd written. And she did, oh, she was thrilled to read it. And then she asked me to come see her and she pulled out a cigarette and lit it in the, the English teacher's lounge. And my story had been about, I, I don't even know, I just know that um, this girl finds a cigarette 
that's been smoked and thinks this is like the worst thing ever. And Mrs. D said between puffs, <laughs> there are worse things than smoking cigarettes, I think. And that was another lesson learned that if you're going to build to a crisis, it better not just be smoking a cigarette. Mm -hmm. um, by the time I got to college, there wasn't a lot of time for writing. So I took a creative writing course. Unfortunately, it was in poetry and it was being taught by my advisor who took me aside and said, Shanae, I've read your portfolio of poems, stick to prose. Yet another lesson learned. Right. So I went on to graduate school, got a PhD and, um, started into academia and there is not a lot of time when you are publishing rather than perishing to do creative writing and so I gave it up and I published my articles I published my monographs um and then um I was sitting in the ICU next to my father's bedside and it was clear he was dying and he took my hand and he said, don't die with regrets. And that was, that was the last thing he said. He went into a coma after that. And it took me a while to figure out exactly what that meant. I, and a few years later, I uh, went on my first international, big international trip in many years. Um, I <clears throat> went to Zimbabwe. And as part of what I was doing there, I happened to meet with a Nyanga, who is um, a seer and a healer. And he throws the bones. And these typically are beautifully carved chicken bones. And you're supposed to come to him with a problem. I didn't have a problem, but he, we threw the bones anyway. And he said, well, you do have a problem. You're a teacher. And he said, you shouldn't be teaching. You, sh you have stories to tell, you should be writing. Now I had told him nothing about myself. So this was pretty much of a twilight zone moment. <laughs> And, and a few years after that, I was really getting into photography now. And I was starting to think maybe academia, teaching the same courses, let's put it aside. Uh, my husband and I went to Honduras. We went to the Mosquito Coast and we were on a narrow gauge train with our fixer. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw a woman with a huge stick pounding it, just lifting it over her head and pounding. And I asked him, what is she doing? He said, I don't have a clue. Do you want to get off the train and find out? So he taps the engineer on the shoulder. They slow the train. They did not stop the train. I grab my camera gear, leap off into the middle of the jungle. And as I'm watching the train chug away I said when's the next train and my fixer said next Tuesday oh boy so well we're there 
So we went and she was pounding cassava root. And she and her sister were the wage earners for their entire little village. She would pound um, the cassava root into um, a pasty flour and her sister would um, cook them on a large stone into these giant cassava tortillas um, over an open fire in this outdoor kitchen. And they were like, oh yes, you have to photograph us. This is terrific. So I started photographing them and one by one, I, all these people started coming around and standing around us. And I heard them saying, National Geographic, National Geographic. And I'm like, well, no, not exactly, but wouldn't it be cool if it were? And I literally took that as a sign to jump off the train of academia. Mm. So there's a lot of depth I could get out of this story, but I need to know before we go on, what did you do between then and Tuesday before the next train came? We walked out of the jungle. Uh, hours and a lot of mosquito bites i was even though i had on deet which i have subsequently become allergic to i was uh, there was not an inch of me that was not bitten yeah yeah i guess it lives up to to its name the mosquito coast exactly (laughs) well so you take these pictures um and what happens next i mean what do you do with them how do you How do you go from there to becoming um, a photojournalist? Um, Well, I started working as a freelancer on spec. And um, I took very seriously that every image has to tell a story. And my big thing has been gallery shows. And I have galleries that have my work in various places in New York and Wisconsin and New Jersey. And what I do when I have a gallery show is put up the pictures, but I also tell the stories of the women and children whose pictures I'm exhibiting. And that led me to starting to write short stories based on some of these people I was meeting, based on some of the places I was in their cultures. And those developed into novellas. Uh, Novellas don't sell real well. And so it took me a few years. I um, had a wonderful YA agent. I'd written a, a YA novel set in Zimbabwe. She was certain it would go to auction. It didn't. And one Christmas Eve, she emailed me and said, I'm not sure you're a YA writer. Um, Why don't you consider writing suspenseful women's fiction? And after I got over my shock that my agent was basically um, telling me to write something she didn't represent and realizing she was right, uh, that's exactly what I did. And I continued to travel and um, for various photo shoots and woven in between the photo shoots, I created the, um, the Annie Hawkins series. And that's what, uh, so Double Exposure is the second book in that series, right? It is. Well, let's talk about it then. What, what can you share with us about Double Exposure? 
Well, uh, Double Exposure is the second book in the Annie Hawkins series. It um, starts about six months after the first book, Behind the Lens, ends. And um, how do you feel about spoilers? <laughs> well, I, it's a bigger question as to how do you feel about spoilers? Um, I don't think we should. I don't think we should go there only because I'm sure there's somebody in this audience who's going to want to buy this book and not want to have anything spoiled for them. So. Well, let me just say that um, Behind the Lens, the first book, is set in Afghanistan. Um, Annie Hawkins, as often happens with photographers, um, takes a picture that is questionable. And she ends up feeling tremendous guilt about having taken the picture because of the tragic consequences. And years later, she returns to Afghanistan seeking redemption. And the redemption she seeks is to be very involved in the education of girls. Um, and um, the first two books are set in 2015 when the Taliban were not in power, but even so, a maximum of 50% of girls in Afghanistan were going to school. And many of them would leave after several years. So there were very few girls who were going on to secondary school and very few who would go on to college. And many villages did not have a girls' school. They had a boys' school, but they could not be mixed. And so some girls who would walk long distances to get to school would literally have acid thrown on them or um, they'd be shot. And so Annie's college roommate, Daria Faludi, who had been an emigre from Afghanistan, returns with her husband and, and daughter to Afghanistan and feeling that if there's going to be change, it has to come from within the country, from Afghans. And she opens a secondary school for girls with the help of Annie, who provides some of the money for it. Annie decides to go and teach a photography workshop at that school. And while she is there, notices some odd things going on with her friend's teenage daughter. Um, at the end of that book, there are some tragic occurrences. Six months later, we get to double exposure and Annie is returning to Afghanistan um, to cover incipient peace talks between the government and the Taliban. But first, she makes a side trip up to the small village of Wadkol to deliver the money that her, her own teenage daughter and the daughter's friends have raised to rebuild the Wadkol School for Girls. Okay. And that brings us to uh, that, that. That's where double exposure it kind of picks up. It sounds like exactly with Annie's arrival in the village. Although, actually, what I did a little differently with double exposure is that the first um, quarter of the book 
is set in Annie's hometown of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. All right. Um, you know, you mentioned your your agent didn't represent sort of this adult suspenseful suspenseful fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so what did you do? I mean, did you have to go out and find a new agent for these books or? I did. Um, and so I was querying agents, which is always humbling challenge humbling yeah (laughs) and you know when you query agents and they say if you don't hear from me it's a no give me 12 weeks um if i like your book if i like the 10 pages or the 25 pages that you send me um i'll ask for a full and it may take me a year to get through your full so i sent out behind the lens And I had a lot of interest in it. People were um, asking, a lot of agents were asking for the full manuscript. I sent it off. And uh, some people thought it was too women's fiction-y. Some people, I had one agent who said, I want a photojournalist in Afghanistan Um, And I really like a U.S. Navy SEAL there, too. And I thought, (laughs) I'm in. (laughs) And she loved the first 50 pages. And I sent her the rest. And she said, oh, this is dark. I'll pass. I had another agent, very prominent agent, who called me and talked for two hours about the book, which does not happen and talk to me about some of the changes she'd like to see me make. And I said, you know, I really, I'm afraid it's gonna lose all its tension and suspense. She said, no, trust me. And if you don't trust your agent, you're lost. So I rewrote it per her specifications. And meanwhile, went off on a photo shoot in far Western Mongolia. And when I came back, she contacted me and said, you're right, it lost all its tension and suspense, pass. So I had one more photo shoot coming up and I decided that if the agent who had the full at that point passed, that I was going to do something different. And my next step was going to be to look at um, local regional presses, smaller presses where they accepted unagented Uh, manuscripts. So I um, happened to know of one in Wisconsin, Orange Hat Publishing, and I sent it to them. And they contacted me a month later and said, we want to offer you a contract. But it'll be a hybrid contract. And at this point, I said, If I have to pay a couple thousand dollars to get this published, I don't care. Mm -hmm. So I said, fine. And then I wait for the contract, which I don't get. And I don't get. And my imagination is saying they decided no. Um, So they set up a Zoom meeting. And the whole staff is there with the publisher sitting in the center. And she said, well... Before we talk about the book, um, we'd like to make a proposal. We have spun off an imprint for adult fiction and nonfiction called 1016 Press. 
and we're going to offer you the first traditional contract so you won't have to pay anything. Wow. And I was trying to be really cool and I said, oh, well, that's nice. Let me think about that. <laughs> and I thought about it very quickly and <laughs> signed the contract. But meanwhile, they said, oh, well, to sweeten the deal, we'll publish all of the books in the series. So I ended up getting a, um, a contract for the whole series. Oh, wow. So how big is the series going to be or do you not know yet? Well, I'm finishing up the third book right now. And um, it may end at the end of the third book, or it may continue on in a modified form after yeah. that. Yeah. So you've come a long way from from writing uh, plays for uh, a dime a piece, <laughs> the garage door as a curtain, to uh, you know, to that that teacher who encouraged you to uh, to write, and first person to probably call you an author to. Uh, getting chastised for, for having a story around a cigarette. <laughs> yeah. And being told not to write poetry. And being told not to write poetry. Well, I mean, how do you feel about writing poetry today? Is, is that... I have kept my word. <laughs> I have not. In fact, um, I'm in a writing group and it was the birthday of one of the people and someone came up with the brilliant idea. It was not I of writing limericks for the birthday girl. And I was like, I can't, I can't write poetry, <laughs> but I did. And that is the only poem, if you can call limericks poems that I have written since college. Well, there you go. Do you remember it off the top of your head? The limerick? Yeah. No. Okay. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Cause I was about to put you on the spot. Well, if I'd known ahead of time, I would have gotten out a copy, but it's pretty bad. No, no, no worries. Uh, well, I do have a couple of other questions for you. Um, again, these are all in the, the spirit of getting to know my guests a little bit better. I do that sometimes through pop culture. So I'm curious, Shanae, what was your favorite TV show when you were growing up? You know, you're not going to like this answer. Why is that? Well, because we were not allowed to watch television when I was growing up. Interesting. Um, my mother felt very strongly that having a life of imagination and activity and doing was more important. And finally, she acquiesced and said, okay, you can watch one half hour a week. And my brother and I said, whoa, we'll each get half an hour. She said, no, no, no. You have to agree on one television show. And, you know, it never occurred to my brother and me to trade off weeks. So we would argue each week. And my mother each week would say, well, you can't decide. So no TV show. So what, what if you had your wish list, what show would you have wanted to watch back in those days? Well, there, there's a slight problem because I don't know most don't of the know TV any. shows. My husband liked a cartoon. Um, I think it was Crusader Rabbit and Raglan T. Tiger. I mean, we're talking little kid. Mm. Um, so. But no going over to a friend's house and seeing TV. Well, you know, we'd have sleepovers. Yeah. We wouldn't watch TV. 
right. you know, we were always out riding bikes, ice skating. Um, I actually, I mean, it sounds terrible that I wasn't allowed to watch TV, but we had a really idyllic childhood. Um, we lived in Northwest New Jersey. It was actually Northwest Bergen County in a town um, when I was, I don't know, really young, there were maybe 1,700 people in the town. I think it has now 20,000. But you did a lot, and you did a lot outside. Yeah, those were great days. I remember growing up and and not, uh, my parents never knowing where we were in the summertime, exactly. anyway, you know? Exactly. Um, well, how about uh, music? Were you into music at all back then? Absolutely. Okay. Well, tell me, who are you listening to? I had a wide range of starting with classical music, um, but also I, hey, I went to college in New Jersey. We were in Bruce Springsteen country and Bruce Springsteen would actually come to Rutgers University. And when he wasn't performing, he'd be out there in the pit with us dancing. Um, I also, I loved Joan Baez, um, also loved the Beatles, the Stones, um, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Nothing wrong with any of those answers. But music played a huge, huge role. Yeah. Um, and I know, I know you travel the world. Is there one place you'd like to visit where you haven't been to yet? Oh, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I am trying to put together a fairly extensive trip to India. I have never been. And um, I want to photograph tigers, but I also want to go up into the Himalayas to Ladakh to photograph snow leopards. And that is a real trek. Yeah, I can imagine. It sounds dangerous. danger. I've had my share. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, Annie Hawkins Green talks about the adrenaline rush. And part of the adrenaline rush is surviving so that you get to go home knowing you can go back out in the field. Yeah. Um, she gets that from me. <laughs> <laughs> and then lastly if, if you could uh, whisper some words of advice to your younger self um, what would you tell your younger self experience it all don't hold back and don't be afraid very good very good uh, words to end on uh, although I do want to give you the chance um, to share any social media uh, that you might have if you're active on social media let us know where where people can find you well, I have a website. It's my name, JeneeSacken.com. Um, I'm also fairly active on Facebook, just my name, Janae Sacken, and I welcome new friends. And I'm also on Instagram under um, author Janae Sacken. And I post about um, my books, my writing. I post reviews of other people's books. And I love to post photographs from the most recent photo shoot. Well, very cool. Which is what Instagram was made for, if I uh, if I know my social media history correctly. Yeah, exactly. Very good. 
Well, Janae, thank you uh, for letting me uncork your story. I had a lot of fun. I did as well. Thank you for asking such great questions. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.